Take a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to pick it up at verse 14. And the title of my sermon is Jesus Out on His Ear. Jesus Out on His Ear. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we open your word, as we try to understand the message of Jesus this morning, we continue to invite your presence to make your word um, powerful in our lives, life-changing. So be with everyone here this morning, Lord. Give us an open heart to embrace your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The setting for our passage today is Jesus coming back to his hometown, Nazareth. So earlier we were speaking about singing about Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, but as a child he grew up where? In a place called Nazareth. I have visited Nazareth uh, not too long ago, and uh, was actually waiting for Yasser Arafat we had a special meeting, but he didn't turn up, so that never materialized. But I remember the event so well because they have this, this square in Nazareth, and um, the place was just packed, and everybody was waiting in anticipation with bated breath for, for Arafat to turn up, and he disappointed us. But Jesus did turn up. He had been traveling through Galilee. His reputation is growing. And what people are hearing and seeing from Jesus, they like. So Jesus' popularity is, is a not, probably not at an all-time high, but it's certainly at a high level. And it says there in, in Luke chapter 4, verse 14, that as he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, remember he had been baptized of the Holy Spirit um, at his baptism. He had been tempted by the evil one in the desert. Now he's fully anointed by the Holy Spirit. Everything he say and does is God-ordained. And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. In fact, there's really not a negative note in the Gospel of Luke up to this passage that we're dealing with this morning. But so far, so good. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. Is it a good thing to go to church on Sabbath? I'm sure it's a good thing to go to church on any day, but here we can clearly see that the Sabbath was the day that Jesus went. And God is going to do things for us if we go and worship him in his church. As he stood up to read, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So what I want you to do is keep your finger in Luke chapter 4, and then turn to Isaiah 61. And I want you to see, compare these two passages, the one that I will read in Luke 4 and the first two verses of Isaiah 61. That's on page 1157 
in the Pew Bibles, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Okay, here's Jesus quoting from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When you look at verse 2 of Isaiah 61, what did Jesus not say? He failed to mention, and the day of vengeance of our God. The day of vengeance of our God. Now, the day of vengeance of our God, which Jesus omitted on purpose, is as much truth as what we've just read. So it's not like Jesus is not prepared to share an unpleasant truth. But he knew that that day of the vengeance of our God would happen at his second return. He knew it was future event. Today, it is the good news of Messiah, the good news of what we call the gospel. Notice in this passage in Luke 4 that he preaches good news first to who? To the poor. Now, when we think of the poor, what comes into our head? When we think of the prisoners in verse 18 of Luke 4, or the recovery of sight for the blind, do we think of physically blind people, prisoners who are locked up in prisons or jails? If we do, we will really miss the point of this passage. Because what we're really talking about this morning is spiritual blindness. Being a prisoner or a captive to sin is the, is the essence of this passage. Being spiritually poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, it says in the Sermon on the Mount. I did come across an illustration of a man called Sam Tannehill in prison for first-degree murder. And two Seventh-day Adventists visited Sam in prison. And at first, they weren't going to be allowed to visit this prisoner, but they were allowed, and they said, we have a Bible for you. And the Bible was, belonged to one of these gentlemen, these Seventh-day Adventist men who visited from his nine-year-old son. And so this convict was kind of touched that a nine-year-old would give up his Bible for this murderer in prison. And so he started to read this Bible. And he read the Bible, obviously, from his viewpoint as a criminal. He had a life of crime. 
So when he read about Jesus sending two of his disciples to borrow a donkey for the triumphal entry, he concluded that Jesus must have been a horse thief. And when he read about Jesus turning water into wine, he was sure that Jesus must have been a bootlegger. But as Sam carried on reading, the Holy Spirit went to work. And I hope every one of you have had that experience where you're pouring over God's Word and God's Spirit just takes over the process. And eventually, it led to Sam's conversion. Now, it would be always nice to have, to have a nice ending to a story, and it would be nice to say that Sam was released from prison because, after all, he'd become a Christian now. But no, they executed Sam. But it's still good news because Sam was liberated from sin. Sam found the Lord Jesus Christ. Sam has the promise, the reality of eternal life. And that is the essence of the passage in Isaiah. Not that Jesus didn't have a soft spot for the poor. We know that he did. But he says, I came to seek and to save who? The lost. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance, essentially, despite all the miracles that Jesus did. I mean, imagine, no wonder people like Jesus at this point in time. He's going through villages and towns. Everyone's being healed. What's there not to like? Well, just hold on to that thought as we go through this passage this morning. So he reads these verses from Isaiah 61. He excludes the phrase, the vengeance of our God, which the Jewish people delighted in that phrase. They thought it was really, really wonderful when God comes and really judges the heathen, the Gentiles, those dogs out there. But of course, they would never apply that to themselves. And then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. I hope they are today. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I think most people would look at that passage in Isaiah 61 and say, this is a messianic passage. That's the way the Jews would have understood it. But now, this man is coming, this child that they knew. They'd seen him grow up as a young man, as a teenager. And now he's claiming for himself, I'm Messiah, I am here, I am the fulfillment of of this passage. What you hear about me, what you see me doing, points to me being the Messiah. Well, whatever they understood when he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, it says in verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. It sounded really good. Don't you like those kind of sermons? They're just so graceful. They're so full of the gospel. You just lap it up. 
But then there's a little question. Isn't this Joseph's son? Now, what does that mean? Well, it obviously means that we've seen this We've seen this person grow up right here in our midst. He's one of our own. But he's claiming something here. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And then Jesus, because he can read the human heart, says this. Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, the scholars really have a tough time with that little phrase that I've just read. Physician, heal yourself. It seems to me the way I'm understanding it is that these people said, okay, homeboy, if we're going to believe in you and trust in you, you'd better produce the evidence and you'd better show it to us. We've heard you've done great things in Capernaum. Now start to do these great things in Nazareth. Now, they'd been happy with what he'd said, so I would assume that they possibly want some, something to see, some miracles, something like that. And in, other, in another context, the Scriptures teach that wicked people are the ones who seem to demand the evidence. But anyway, this is Jesus' way of responding. I tell you the truth, he continued in verse 24, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. No prophet is accepted. Was Jesus a prophet? Yes, and more than a prophet. Were the prophets in the Old Testament embraced? Well, he uses two examples. He uses the example of Elijah, and he uses the example of Elisha. These, these two stories, even though I got my prophets mixed up with the children this morning, these two prophets, um, one of them, Elijah, goes to this widow lady who had a son, most of you can remember the story, and she was on the edge of starvation. Remember Elijah had said, there'll be, no there'll be no rain, there'll be no water in the land? Remember that, that? And so this woman is, even though she's living in a heathen land outside of the boundaries of Israel, she's suffering big time. But so are many widows in Israel suffering. And it looks like these are being bypassed by prophet Elijah and he is being told specifically to go to this widow of Zarephath. So he goes to the widow of Zarephath, finds that she has just a little, very, very little left to make a little cake or bread or something like that, just enough maybe for her to survive and her sons to survive for another day. And Elijah says... Uh, make some food for me. So she has a choice to make. Do I eat the little that's left with my son, knowing that we'll die very, very soon? Or do I put my trust in the prophet of Israel, and I assume the God of Israel, because that's who he represents, 
and maybe he'll take care of us. And of course, it's one of those great stories that she does what the prophet tells her, and the oil just keeps going and flowing and flowing and flowing. She gathers up all these empty jars and she fills them up. And this widow of Zarephath is well taken care of and her son through the prophet by the God of heaven. The other story is Elisha and Captain Naaman. Captain Naaman, unfortunately, had leprosy, pretty serious disease in those days. And so little maid who has been kidnapped, probably kidnapped, little Israelite girl, Jewish girl, she says, go to the prophet. I know a prophet who can help you. And she sends him to prophet Elisha. And Elisha, when Naaman comes and explains the situation, Elisha says, go to the river, dirty, muddy river Jordan, and bathe there, go down seven times in the river. Well, at first he hesitates his servants say, hey, if he'd asked you, ask you to do something really, really hard, you would have done it, so do it anyway. It's your, own, it's your last hope, and he does it. Goes down once, twice, three, four, five, six, still has leprosy. Goes down the seventh time, and what happens? He is cleansed. So comes back rejoicing to, a, to Elisha, wants to give him all sorts of presents, and he says, hey, it wasn't me. He's wise enough not to take the glory to himself. It's the God of heaven who made you well. Okay, here's the important part. Why did Jesus tell his home church family about these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, who bypassed the Israelites, who were up to their neck in sin, and seeming not, seemingly not wanting to repent of that and go to these two, heathen, these two heathens to help them. What's, what point is Jesus trying to make here? Well, whatever the point was, and I think what the point was, shall I tell you? Don't you like sermons where you have to figure it out and the pastor doesn't spoon feed you all the time? Shall I tell you? I think the self-righteousness, Jesus is putting his finger on a problem of the heart. The self-pride, the national pride of the Jewish people. See, it's one thing to say we are God's people but you can't just say it, you've got to live it. There's got to be a transformation, there's got to be a living of this stuff on a daily basis. And somehow Jesus, maybe because he could read, read the heart of people, maybe because he'd grown up with these people, he knew that they were not right with God. And God had bypassed the Israelites of old when they were in their rebellious stage and gone to these heathen, these dogs, these Gentiles, these unclean people whose hearts seemed to be open in a way that the Israelite heart was not open. And God blessed them abundantly. Now, I'm sure when those stories were being told or were being mentioned by Jesus, knowing that the audience would certainly know these two stories, I'm sure that the Jewish people were just getting angrier and angrier 
and angrier because their self-righteousness, their spiritual pride is being exposed. Now, I don't know about you, but if God through his prophet, be it Elijah, Elisha, or the Lord Jesus Christ, comes and puts his finger on a spiritual problem in my life and in your life, then I want to respond to that in the right way, because that is often how the Holy Spirit will work. And you and I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't want to quench the Holy Spirit. We certainly don't want to shut down his operation in our lives. So we need to respond with repentance, with confession. Well, how do the people here respond? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Talk about beating up on the preacher. Wasn't it just a few verses ago where they were saying, wow, just listen to this guy. And within a very short time, they're manhandling him and ready to throw him over the cliff. Reminds me of a joke that, that is an old one. I shared it with the Spanish this morning. Do you want to hear it? A man purchases a horse that formerly belonged to a preacher. And in order to make the horse go, the command, praise the Lord, had to be given. To stop the horse, hallelujah, was to be said. So the man who purchased the horse did everything right in getting the horse started. Praise the Lord, he shouted, and what did the horse do? It took off at a fast gallop. The problem was that the horse was heading towards the edge of a cliff. Whoa, the man shouted. Did the horse stop? No, the horse didn't stop. Suddenly he realized he'd forgotten the command to stop the horse. Just in the nick of time he remembered, hallelujah! The horse came to a stop at the very edge of the cliff so that its new owner could look over the cliff and see the chasm below. The man began to feel good, maybe a little bit religious now. And so with great excitement and relief, he shouted, praise the Lord! God doesn't want us to go over the cliff. And I think one of the thoughts that came to my mind as I was going over these verses was, what do you want? Do you want religion? Or do you want Jesus? Maybe you can't have both. Maybe you can't have both. Truth is unpopular today as it was in those days. Those who speak and live truth will be persecuted. Maybe the only exception to that would be prosperity preachers. The good news of salvation is for all. The Jews could not handle that truth. How do we feel about it? How do you look at seemingly the worst of the worst? People like Sam, 
murderers, especially, of course, if they'd murdered your loved one, how do we look on them? Are they without hope? Are they heathen dogs? Jesus didn't think so. He came to seek those people. Mercy is available for all mankind. Now, when I look at Seventh-day Adventist, and I really believe this in the bottom of my heart, I'm not saying it because I'm supposed to say it, because I'm a preacher and I'm a Seventh-day Adventist preacher, I really do believe that the Seventh-day Adventist church has been incredibly blessed with the truth that we have in our church family. Don't you think so? I mean, I just took the passage in Desire of Ages on these verses today and just went over it and over it and over it and thought, man, just, just quite wonderful the way it's put together. And I do read a lot of other writers and are also blessed by them too. But we have this light, we have this truth, but do we apply it to our lives? Let me just share a few things from this section here in Desire of Ages. She's just quoted the verses that I read about Elijah and Elisha. And she says, by this relation of events in the lives of the prophets, Jesus met the questionings of his hearers. The servants whom God had chosen for a special work, Elijah and Elisha, were not allowed to labor for a hard-hearted, you have to underline that, and unbelieving people. But those who had hearts to feel and faith to believe were especially favored with evidences of God's power through the prophets. And then in another paragraph, our standing before God depends not upon the amount of light that we have received, because after all, we're, we're all standing on one another's shoulders, aren't we, as far as truth and knowledge is concerned, but upon the use we make of what we have. So maybe you only understand the little, but are you applying the little to your life? Thus even the heathen who choose the right as far as they can distinguish it are in a more favorable condition than are all those who have had great light and profess to serve God, but who disregard the light and by their daily life contradict their profession. So where there are things going on in your daily life that contradict the light and the truth that you've been brought into, then we have to take that to Jesus. We have to do something about that. We can't just brush it off, brush it under the carpet, or whatever else we do with that. Lord, just give me a mind, give me a heart like Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that's convicting you in those situations. But he's not just convicting you so you can be passive. He's convicting you so that you can repent, so that you can confess, so that you can change your behavior, so that you can give that to the Lord Jesus Christ and allow his Holy Spirit to make you exactly what he wants to make you. The Jewish leaders were filled with spiritual pride. They were haughty. Don't you think so? Have you ever read those passages 
in Matthew, I think it's Matthew chapter 23. It's the kind of passages that you'd almost never read for devotions because Jesus is scathing the way that he talks about these religious leaders. And it's not because he doesn't love them. He does love them. That's why he's talking to them. He doesn't want them to commit the unpardonable sin. They're fighting against the Holy Spirit. All the evidence shows that Jesus was and is who he claimed to be. But they still fought against it. That's a very, very dangerous thing to do. So here she calls it spiritual pride. Their desire for the glorification of self manifested itself even in the service of the sanctuary. They loved the highest seats in the synagogue. Is that a problem in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Yes, it is. It doesn't have to be, and it shouldn't be. The ones with the greatest leadership ability should be the most humble that God can find. So they loved the highest seats in the synagogue. They loved greetings in the marketplaces, were gratified with the sound of their titles on the lips of men. As real piety declined, they became more jealous for their traditions and their ceremonies. And because their understanding was darkened by selfish prejudice, they could not harmonize the power of Christ's convicting words with the humility of his life. They did not appreciate the fact that real greatness can dispense with outward show. Another thing that is mentioned as important here is the purity of Christ's life. Now, I don't know about you, but in my life, the closer I get to Christ, the more impure that I appear. And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. So she says here, he was the embodiment of purity, and they were impure. He dwelt among men an example of spotless integrity. His blameless life flashed light upon their hearts. His sincerity revealed their insincerity. It made manifest the hollowness of their pretentious piety and discovered iniquity in them in its odious character, and such a light was unwelcome. And then finally, she mentions about how the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that passage in Isaiah 61 that they said, this is Messiah. He's going to free us from the Romans. He's going to do all these things for us. The majority of inhabitants on planet Earth would never get the benefits of that as far as the Jews were concerned. Jesus comes along, takes the same passage, interprets it, as applying to himself and shows that his grace and his mercy is for all mankind as illustrated through Elijah and Elijah going to these heathen people. And unfortunately, in Jesus' home church, they resented that so much that these Sabbath keepers, these commandment keepers, who knew that the commandment says, thou shalt not murder, were ready to take the Lord Jesus Christ and snuff his life out. Did you notice right at the end there, it says that Jesus just disappeared from them? Did you catch that? I didn't read that, I don't think, but uh, that's right at the end in, in verse uh, 30, is it, Evelyn? 
Luke 4, right at the end, that Jesus just disappeared. And that is probably, though it doesn't say it, that's probably the work of the angels. I think of Lot, I think of Elisha in the little town of Dothan, how the enemy soldiers were all surrounding them. And the servant got up in the morning and rubbed his eyes and looked up and he said, Master, we're surrounded by the enemy. And Elisha gets up, yawns, looks out, and he says, yeah, but we are surrounded by God's army too. So if you want to do what's right, which simply means embracing Jesus in his fullness, in his divinity, in his humanity, being everything that Christ wants you to be, then you will receive the blessings from God. And God will be able to use you powerfully on planet Earth. We have a little time to figure this stuff out. Jesus is coming. He's not going to wait on any one of us. He's got his timetable, and he's going to come. And he wants to find his church family as embracing him and doing his works, not rejecting him. Let's pray. Gracious God, May our eyes be fastened on Jesus in the right way. Understand that he is the Messiah with mighty claims. We thank you for the good news that he brings to us. Take our blindness away. Free us from the shackles of sin. Proclaim liberty to those who are captive. Lord, spiritually, may we experience all of these things on a daily basis. May we leave this church building as a church family and share the good news of Jesus to boys and girls and men and women who are all around us throughout, through each day and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them so they can have everlasting life too. In Jesus' name, we thank you. Amen.